Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. With the world fed up with social networks exploiting our content and abusing our privacy, we're looking for a way to truly own our social graph and connections. That's Lens Protocol, a decentralized social networking platform from the founder of Aave, the massive social lending pool, Stanley Kulichov. And today we're going to be discussing the future of decentralizing social networks, what it means to really get to define the rules through which you social network, to get to determine how you want to monetize and how you can avoid actually being the product sold to advertisers and truly be the user again. And today we're joined by Stanley Kulichev, the founder of Lens Protocol and CEO of Aave, billions of dollars locked on their lending profile or uh, their lending pools. But now he's been building out this new social networking platform, allowing developers to build all sorts of apps on top of it. And so instead of every app having to have its own social graph, you actually get to transfer your social graph and use it with any of these apps that you choose. And so really excited to have you here today, Stanley. Maybe you could just kick us off by saying, what, what did you find so frustrating about the old world of social networking? And what was that kind of eureka moment that you had to start something new? Thanks, by the way, for the um, magnificent introduction. So I, I've never introduced myself so properly as, as you. So, <laughs> um, But I think uh, for me, the biggest frustration is the um, limitations. So there's a couple of types of limitations. One is from the user perspective. So what you can do actually with your social network and your social graph. And the second part is about the more kind of like a developer experience and the innovation part. Now, for me, um, essentially very common concept in all of these more traditional social media platforms is that they tend to get the user to create that social network within their platform and their database. And that becomes quite challenging, for example, when you actually want to get your followers and port them into a new platform. You don't have this kind of like a digital exit idea where you own your followers and you can bring them from one application to another and all these applications are actually working to make your life better and build you better experience and the developer aspect on the other hand is that it's relatively hard to build on platforms that are locked in the sense that you have to build for one particular application but when you have a open social graph it essentially means that anyone can just build and focus on building for new user experience and that experience layer. And if it's very successful and works well, you have access to the whole social graph. So the users don't need to take the risk to actually jump from one application to another. And I think these are, these are the kind of like the two biggest frictions that I've seen in my life and, and within my peers, why something like Web3 could actually solve it. I totally agree. I think the fact that we're locked into social networks, we can't change our social graph, gives these networks the ability to abuse us because they know we can't leave. We're stuck with them. And so until there's better portability on those social networks, why would they be incentivized to truly help us? So super excited that if anybody is listening to the show right now, if you stick around to the end of the show, you're going to get a code for early access to claim your Lens profile and be one of the first users on this new social networking platform. So definitely stick around for that. And if you have a chance, hit that little share button, uh, the little square with the up arrow at the bottom and leave a note for why other people on Clubhouse should listen to this. It really helps get more people in the door. And we'd love to have people in here for this conversation. So, Stanley, maybe you could just break down. What was that eureka moment when you started Lens? And how do you get something as big as a social network, which you know, requires so much of that, you know, that network effect of getting tons of people on before anybody truly cares about it? How did you get something like that off the ground? I've been building Web3 technologies for the past uh, roughly seven years. So my Web3 journey started a bit from university. So I was finishing my studies in Helsinki, Finland, where I'm originally from. It's basically a small country in the Nordics. And end of my studies, I started to research more how you could use uh, different technologies for making uh, legal agreements better as I was basically studying law. But I would always be in technology, so I was building web applications, fin applications before that. And I stumbled upon on, on Ethereum and the idea of having a computer running on a blockchain where you could create different kinds of applications and deploy them. They can be immutable or you can govern them within the community. And one of the first applications we built was a uh, financial protocol. And reason for that is that many of the early blockchain applications were actually solving financial problems. Even 
Bitcoin was solving the sort of value transactions and so forth. And with the uh, virtual machine on the blockchain, there's more and more use cases you could actually solve because you had that interoperability on the blockchain. So we built a protocol which essentially stored, uh, stores at the moment from 7 billion to 15 billion worth of value on those smart contracts. And you can supply different kinds of cryptographic assets and earn yield. And we learned from that experience and in general from the Web3 space that building Web3 protocols is very slow, but in, the, in, the, in a good way. So essentially, whenever you build a protocol, it doesn't need to get very quickly the network effect or the platform effect compared to, for example, building traditional applications where you essentially have maybe one, two, three, or four, maybe maximum five years of time span, within that time span, you have to build an application and a network where you have uh, users interacting on a, on a daily basis, and then you, you can grow from there. And in Web3, because of the concept of ownership, so let's say that you have your keys, you have your wallet, you have assets there, you own those assets, uh, you have your blockchain-based social media profile, you own the access that, to that profile and those followers. So everything you have is based on the ownership idea. And NFTs are part of that uh, concept. So when we look at some of the networks that has been built in the tree ecosystem, they're propagating very slowly. So we have a uh, ENS, which is called Ethereum name service, where you could actually get your Ethereum uh, name. Let's say I have stani.eth. So people can send funds to that address without actually using my long address, which, which starts from 0x and so forth. And going back a few years ago, there was maybe a couple of thousand, few thousand active users, and now there's over a million of ENS users. And there's a bunch of other examples where in Web3, we see that over a period of time, year after year, these networks are growing slowly, but very firmly. And I think it's the same case with the Lens protocol. We launched over a month ago, and there's roughly 36,000 profiles minted. And of course, the access isn't completely open and permissionless at the moment, but will be in the future. But slowly, we have been whitelisting different kinds of uh, communities based on your free social footprint. So in blockchain, basically, all the interactions that you are doing, it's publicly available information, and anyone can actually use it and create you better services or get data and, and essentially build different kinds of uh, allow list and, and user experiences. That makes sense. But I want to break in here and just ask a little bit about sovereign ownership. This is a concept we hear constantly when talking about Web3 and crypto. But I haven't heard a lot of people talk about like why fundamentally that's important. Like I think to me, it's the idea that we're just we don't feel a lot of ownership or agency in our lives, you know, and we don't feel like we have control of our own government when we don't have the control of our own careers or our money, that suddenly this feels like, oh, a sense of agency or the ability to really like play by your own rules a little bit, but maybe you could just talk to me about like why that sovereign ownership is so important when it comes to social networking. For example, if you use social media applications today, many of them work really well. I love Twitter. I use it constantly. I use it every day. I will probably use it for quite a while. I use TikTok. I love it as well. I love Instagram for different reasons and definitely work and, and they provide uh, user experience. And I think uh, when it comes to self-sovereign whether it's identity, profile, or something else. I think the idea is the, the concept of turning the dynamics of the user and the service. So normally when we're using something like Twitter, we're creating a lot of data into Twitter. And at the same time, we're actually letting the platforms know what kind of services we're more likely to buy. And, and essentially, we, the users are the product. So we have less choices in that way. So we are bound by what, for example, uh, Twitter wants to publish in terms of features, algorithms, user experience, and also, most importantly, terms and conditions. Now, when you actually switch this relationship in a way where the users have the ownership of their profile, meaning that you're not anymore locked into the platform in any way. So let's say if you find something new, you can take your followers and, and essentially you can use a new application and have different kind of experiences there, features. It changes the dynamics in a way where now those algorithms and applications, they start to work for you and compete actually for providing you better services. And I think that's the radical change here. 
Yeah, I love that idea that if you can actually make it portable, if people can choose wherever they want, they can vote with their feet, then these networks have to compete. They don't just rely on their long-term lock-in. I mean, you saw things like you know, Facebook went through all of these privacy scandals, and I covered Facebook aggressively. I wrote like 2,000 articles about Facebook when I was at TechCrunch, and none of those articles seemed to ever make people <laughs> actually leave the network because the fact yeah. was that they just didn't really have a great alternative for their IRL social graph, you know, Twitter for your interest graph, maybe Instagram for like your aesthetic graph, but for your IRL social graph, like that was still the place. And so even though people hated it and they talked about hating it, they still never left. And I think that's what I'm, I'm so uh, inspired by with, with Lens Protocol. And maybe you could just tell me like, what are some of the early things that people are building in terms of apps on top of this protocol that are going to get people excited and say, oh, this is something really different or something I couldn't do. It's not just philosophically better because of sovereign ownership. It actually provides new utility that I don't get elsewhere. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, in Lens Protocol itself, it's built in a way where anyone can build any application on top of the Lens Protocol, meaning that you have the basic social media features that you normally have, essentially creating a profile, following other users. And when you create a profile, it's actually an NFT. So we are using the NFT technology to essentially make profiles more transferable. So you can send from one uh, wallet address to another. Maybe it's your own profile or a brand you created and the follow relationship as well are NFTs. And you can publish content. And any content you're actually publishing are actually also collectible as NFTs. So for example, with Lens Protocol, it's actually very attractive for creators to come and actually create content uh, with different kinds of uh, monetization in mind. For example, you can create, for example, and publish music. You can publish art, text directly to your community. And essentially, your community can actually collect those pieces of content. And what it means uh, is that you could set different kinds of collect fees and someone else can actually mirror that content to their own audiences and you can share those fees. So there is some features that are built in in terms of monetization, but essentially it's a protocol. So it means that you can actually select which kind of features you want to choose, how you want to resolve the data, do you want to resolve it in a decentralized fashion and store it in something like uh, IPFS, which is a decentralized file storage, or uh, you want to store it on, on the blockchain or actually in, in a cloud in a more private fashion. So it, it, it really like, brings new spectrum of innovation for the builders. There's roughly 50 different kinds of frontends being built, uh, mostly from the hackathons. So we always encourage different kinds of hackers to come and build things. One of the most interesting things I recently see is an application called uh, Tea Party. So teaparty.live. And essentially what it means is that you can take your lens post or a Twitter tweet and you can actually submit into the application. And if it's not already on the lens protocol, it submits it there. And the users can actually interact with that particular content. So when they're interacting with the content, they're getting tea. And tea is essentially a so-called soul-bound token, what uh, Vitalik Buterin has been talking about when it comes to non-financial use cases. And it's essentially a token that is, isn't transferable, transferable. It doesn't have value, but it indicates uh, reputation, for example. And that creates this kind of like an interaction graph, and which, which is fascinating to see on a blockchain basis. There's also Lenser, which is just community-built front-end for the protocol. And that was built within two weeks in a hackathon. And there is dozens of uh, interesting use cases, but also from the creator's perspective, we had today actually a so-called proof of protest where a creator named Pussy Riot was basically dropping art content into the Lens Protocol with the collection uh, mechanism, and they were raising funds to fight for the right for uh, abortion. So it, it really has a lot of flexibility what you can actually build. That's amazing. I love the idea that you know, the creators get to set the rules because for so long, you know, websites like you know, Facebook and Instagram, they didn't pay anything to creators. And now they're yep. all racing to create these big creator funds and give away all this money. But it's, it's super unstable. You never really know the rules. It's such a black box. And suddenly that, that money goes away and those creators are kind of left high and dry. And you saw big social networks do this with video content, with news content. And so the idea that it's really about what the fellow users want, not what a, a big social network decides is the algorithm, I think is so important. But that brings me to the question of like, who is the user and who is the product? So I actually once asked this question to Mark Zuckerberg on stage, 
he was not pleased, let me say, uh, in the least, when I was <laughs> when I implied that, you know, if the advertisers are the ones that are really funding Facebook, then they are the users and the, the users are actually the product that are basically being sold to those advertisers. And so I think a lot of people have wanted an alternative to that. You saw social networks like Ello Rise being like, no ads, mm-hmm. like you, we're not selling you. But if you don't have either a real new utility that makes people join, or you don't have something better than just you're not being like some philosophical uh, reason why it's better, I think it's really hard to get people to switch and go through those switching costs and setting up a new profile, even if you only have to do that once. And so we'd love to hear your perspective on that concept of like, are the users the, the product? Are the advertisers the product? In this case, maybe are the developers actually the users because they're the ones that are going to be building what's on this that, that creates the, the value here? Or how are you going to make this a sustainable network long term so that it's never about you know extracting data extracting attention from the user and they don't become the product yeah i think this is the most valuable question in in the social media landscape and it's definitely like hard to actually answer even from the web2 perspective but the, the clear difference is definitely that where the web2 social medias if you aren't actually paying for anything and you are essentially providing data you're helping the platform some way to understand their user base, their interest graphs, and, and essentially sell different kinds of products and services. Now, the thing is that you don't really have a choice here. Um, so, so you are going to those platforms and they will do it whether you like it or not. Uh, you might have people coming and criticizing it. Uh, and on top of that, you might have some small protests, but essentially everyone goes back to the cycle because there, as you said, there, there isn't any alternative. But in terms of the um, uh, Web3's perspective and from the eyes of Lens protocol, the idea is that when you have your profile and, and you own that relationship with your audience, it's actually now the value changes completely because it's not anymore the Facebook's database or Twitter's database and that all that data that is and u- user base that is valuable, it's actually now those users who have profiles and followers and are interacting, the value is, 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 is there. So it's kind of like a switch between who can now decide upon the value. So let's say if I have my audience, so if, if there is an advertiser um, and they want to basically benefit some way from my social graph, and or collaborate or share content with me, they have to go directly to the creator, directly to the user. And this is where things become interesting because uh, you kind of don't need any more to rely on, on platforms in the same way. But what I think what, what, what will be interesting is that uh, even though the users have the power again, so they can decide on what they distribute to their own peer networks, whether they want to monetize something. And the monetization mechanisms built in the Lens protocol, they are just an example of what you can do with collecting the content, mirroring. I'm pretty sure there is going to be a, some other kind of a protocol level approaches. But I'm mostly fascinating, fascinated also about the, the uh, middle layer and algorithm layer. So for example, now that you have your profile and your follower base, now all the algorithms are actually competing on making most out of it. And that means, for example, finding the content that is most interesting for you, who to follow essentially, and algorithms compete with each other in a very open form. And, and those applications built on top, uh, they will do the same. So they will actually start finding you things that are interesting for you because if they aren't doing it or they aren't entertaining you or providing you user experience that you actually need, you can easily go elsewhere. So I think when it comes to the kind of like a who is the product question, I think it's more of a choice where the user can decide that, hey, I have actually the value and how I could use my value that I have. Whereas in, in those Web2 social media platforms, you basically are kind of like stuck there and you, you have to um, obey whatever the terms and conditions are. You can make money on Web2 social media platforms but you're making through the rules that these uh, platforms are creating. I love that idea of the, the algorithms actually competing and users finally realizing their own value. 
people sort of think that just because you're not paying in dollars means that you don't actually have value. But as soon as you start to recognize your own value, kind of like building your own sense of self-esteem and self-confidence, then you start to realize that like, I'm, I'm the one in control and I get to dictate who that data flows to and who gets access to it to build new things off of. And I think we've already seen that how competition between different types of algorithms can massively change the social landscape. You know, to date, so much of the, the, the algorithms that we think of ruling our social lives have been focused entirely around who do you follow and how many followers does that account have? So like the Instagram algorithm, for instance, for a very long time was only focused on, you know, yes, do you follow this person already? And then how many other people engage with this content? But, you know, it really was about the account as the atomic unit, where it was like, if this person has lots of followers, they have lots of reach. And I thought the huge innovation that we saw was TikTok coming in and saying, you know what? It doesn't really matter if you have a ton of followers. It doesn't matter if you're famous. All that matters is if you're making something people care about. And so instead of relying on, oh, how many followers you already have, it just seeds your content to a bunch of people, tests it, sees if they like it. And if, it, if they like it, if a lot of people engage with it, they save it, they reshare it, it starts to show it to more and more people. And you can have these brand new accounts from brand new creators suddenly get incredibly popular. And I think that's what makes TikTok feel so fresh compared to these other networks. And so one question would be like, what other types of, uh, of atomic units do you think really matter here? Or what are some of the other you know, fundamentals of this algorithm that you think you could see other developers building on top of? Like instead of the account and how many followers you have mattering the most or you know, how many other people like this concept when they're shown it, are there other major sort of facets that you care about? I mean, it could be pure recency. It could be about very specific topics. It could be things that like, I only want things that are totally different than what I'm already seeing. I'm sick of my social graph. I want totally new content. What are you kind of imagining these new algorithms are going to unlock for us? Yeah, and I think it, especially that like you can tweak a lot of algorithms in one direction to another. So for example, like, uh, when I use Spotify uh, today and there's the uh, recommendation algorithm, I, for example, I w- wish that it maybe found 20% more the content that I actually like or discovers maybe 20% more something new that I might like. So all this like tweaking is, is and, and personalization of algorithms is a super fascinating topic because you don't need to have an algorithm that is, is basically used by everyone else, but there could be like something that is very personalized for you. And second thing that is for me super interesting is that we have this concept of Web3 footprint. So the more you interact over the blockchain, so for example, you are voting in different DAOs, uh, decentralized organizations and participating there, contributing, you're supplying liquidity into the other protocol, or let's say you're buying NFT, NFTs with your friends and you have a collection all these interactions are essentially for you uh, a, a Web3 footprint. And it's also a social graph in, in one way. And for me, it's interesting to actually look into those different social graphs and Web3 history and use that in a way to find things that might be super interesting for you. And that might be who to follow, but also I'm super excited about this idea of creating algorithms on what content you might be interested in, in collecting as well. And, and I think those areas are most fascinating to me. Yeah, one thing I would love to see somebody build is kind of like the Wikipedia chain rabbit hole, but for content. Pinterest actually had this for a really brief period of time and they got rid of it, which I thought was just like the dumbest thing because this idea was so cool. It was basically a more like this button that would just inject a bunch more posts similar to the one that you clicked on into your feed. And it wouldn't like take you to a whole new feed. It wasn't like, oh, you dive into this hashtag page and all you see is this, but it's just giving you a little boost, like a, a you know, a, just a little allotment of more posts of that style. And I think that's honestly how we often like consume content. We see something, we suddenly realize we dig it. We want to see more like it. We want to go further down that rabbit hole. But a lot of networks aren't really designed for that. And so I would love to see somebody build something to that respect. Something interesting to me also is to see like how other people are seeing content and what kind of feed they have. And this is something that I, I, I quite frequently look into. For example, if I, I see my partner's uh, Twitter on the laptop, the feed, and I'm always constantly looking like how it's different than, for example, mine. And that is very interesting how there might be differentiators, but also I would like to just step, step into someone else's shoes and look what kind of feed there is and, and what fascinating things I could find from there. 
Yeah, I like it the way that you guys are formalizing the curator economy. Instead of just the creator economy, the idea that by resharing really great things, if people then buy or collect those, you know, those posts or those NFTs based on your resharing, you actually get a share of that revenue, which I think is really cool because it unlocks this whole second layer of saying, instead of just being, oh, you can only truly participate if you are an original creator. If you make things from scratch, maybe you remix some content, but you're really having to do the content creation yourself. There are some people who are not amazing creators, but they're amazing critics. They're amazing you know, analysts. They can see things, they can pull things together, or they maybe they just spend way too much time online and they have a better perspective or like you know, 10,000 foot view of the landscape than other people. And you've seen you know, meme pages on Instagram massively just explode with popularity because people are like, listen, I can't go like finding all these memes myself. I'm going to trust in this account to do it for me. And I like the idea that with Lens, you could actually take on somebody's entire profile, like take on their entire following feed. And so instead of sharing a post, you're actually sharing your entire feed. And so that I'm excited to hear like your thoughts on that concept of a curator economy and how that might emerge in this because it's a network where it's not just all about original creation, which is what fuels these old school social networks. They always need more posts, more content in the, in the network. But for you guys, it's, that's not what the incentive is it's just making the best experience, even if it's more about rehashing old content. Because I also think we we spend a kind of comical amount of time consuming just the most brand new content. Meanwhile, they're like amazing poems, paintings, all these things from the last few hundred years, and we never see them just because they're not brand new. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that curator economy. Yeah, I think personally that's in the curator economy, it's not very incentivized. Like, the, the, like, there's everywhere curation. So, I mean, whether it's like music, it might be content. I mean, I used to be a DJ for several years and, and it's, it was all about curation. And that was the thing for me. And when you could curate something, uh, an interesting uh, DJ set and, and play it out and, and you get a lot of discussion about it it's, and people enjoy it, something that's very important to me and, and my peers. And the same way when you do a playlist in Spotify, you essentially curate and that's a lot of work like curation is something where people put a lot of effort and work and it's the least kind of like a rewarding there is value and there is reward and reward is 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 essentially that you kind of like create joy for yourself and your peers but then as kind of like a from a monetization perspective it really doesn't exist to wide extent and and for us the lens protocol wants to empower the curation part so we added small things, for example, that uh, if you mirror content, so if you share someone else's content on your feed, so if you amplify, you can get mirror fees, so you can actually get part of the collect fees that the original creator sets. But that's just one example in the, in the protocol level. Then the open algorithm level, where anyone can create algorithms and serve into those uh, applications, that's also uh, curation. And there can be different kinds of curation who to follow, community-based follow lists, algorithm-based uh, followings or what content to collect. The curation aspect is just uh, everywhere. And I think that's going to be a, a big topic for us, actually defining different kinds of mechanisms to monetize. But the coolest thing about blockchain for me personally when it comes to curation is that I can actually say and have the bragging rights when I curated something very valuable in, in the first place. And down the line and, and as we go forward, we can actually go retroactively and see, okay, who are these people who are curated? Like we can give them more value, giving them more accessibility into different features or different communities uh, or find other interesting Web3 native uh, incentives me- incentive mechanisms. So with that amazing potential of permissionless systems and really being able to define your own rules, you also deal with some of the moderation issues. You know, Facebook and, and other networks have come under tons of flack for their exact position of what they say is allowed and what isn't allowed. And, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, like we don't want all of these awful things, this hate speech, this other stuff. But then all of a sudden, you know, if it goes the other way, they're like, but how are we going to actually do that moderation? Doesn't that require all this surveillance or, you know, people being able to say who can and can't post? 
post things. And so how are you guys thinking about moderation? And do you just leave that entirely up to the application layers? Or because people are posting to your core protocol through their profile, are there things that aren't allowed on Lens? And like, where do you draw that line? Because I think that's been one of the thorniest issues, also one of the most expensive issues. I mean, Facebook has like tens of thousands of people employed in moderation and safety at this point, just so it can be kind of consumer-friendly, family-friendly, advertiser-friendly. But at times, you know, they've definitely stepped over the line and taken down really legitimate content, whereas other times they've done what I think a lot of people think is the right thing, like taking down politicians' accounts or limiting their, their reach. Because there's this idea of you might have freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. The idea that like, yes, you're allowed to say something, but we don't have to amplify it. So we'd just love to hear your perspective on how Lens approaches moderation. Yeah, and I think moderation is, is, is definitely like, it, it's a big challenging issue in the Web3 and also Web2 Web social media and even in, in just media it, itself. So I, I think it's kind of like a, the most hardest part to solve. In our case, so we, we see moderation or, or even like moderation creation, uh, even spam goes a bit the same category. I mean, Twitter is fighting on a daily basis with, with spam accounts from half a million to million account suspensions per day. We see like in different levels. So there's the protocol level. So on the smart contract level, there's different things you can actually do to create the content. But there we want to set as least amount of limit, limitations as possible and, and, and keep the protocol as flexible as many use cases uh, as possible to, to basically drive innovation. The second layer is the, the middleware that will serve those applications. So middleware means that interacting with blockchain, getting data with, from the blockchain is something w- which is a bit of time-consuming process. So what usually many of service providers are doing, they, they basically get the data from the blockchain and then they serve that data to applications and they can create different kinds of algorithms, endpoints, and it also decentralize this particular layer. Now with this uh, middleware layer, you can actually create a lot of uh, moderation. So essentially uh, you can filter content. Uh, there is some basic moderation in the Lens protocol where you can flag content, whatever, whichever application is posting the content as through a user flagging or reporting that it's inappropriate content, for example. And then it's flagged across the whole middle layer uh, service provider. And that means that any application that is actually taking and using that particular service will not serve the content. And then anyone can come actually create a new algorithm and say, hey, I use this very fascinating ML technique that uh, essentially works way better than the the algorithm that was uh, invented one month ago. And this innovation can thrive all the time. And then those applications can actually use the algorithm. And then application level, application can choose to use one of the middle layers or what they can even do, they can use another protocol that is maybe counter-moderation protocol and use that, or they can create their own system and their own approach, or even use their audience to moderate the content. And I think in all of those all layers, there's a big kind of like a pie of... Uh, community engagement. So whether it's related to what to limit in smart contracts, what to serve in the middleware, and, and what to do on the application levels, I think a lot of has to do with the with the communities. And the community is coming and stepping in and thinking about like what to do in whichever layer. And also when you keep the system very open. So if anyone can actually contribute to building the, the um, Lens protocol, creating new modules, and creating new protocols on top, and also creating algorithms as well. You have an open system where anyone can participate and affect on creating better system. And this doesn't exist. You can't just create a new API and, and service it into directly to Twitter, Facebook, and, and improve their systems and keep the algorithm open and transparent on what you are doing at the same time. So I think the problem is solved in, in multiple layers, but it's going to be very community-driven. I'm so fascinated here because there's such a trade-off to, to have to deal with. It's like, okay, great. You can let people flag things and then other apps can use those flags and say, we're not going to serve any flagged content. But then again, somebody could just maliciously go, I'm going to flag all of Stanny's content. And then anybody else who's using that moderation layer, they might not realize, but they're actually filtering out all of this content based on this sort of malicious flagging. So I think like at, at any point, having some human who can you know, be that arbitrator in the, uh, in the mix, I think is important. And I wonder, you know, are 
are we going to see decentralized moderation styles too, where you kind of build a, a ad hoc board of, of, you know, uh, of moderators for any specific post, you know, you ping 10 users and say, Hey, you get incentive. If you properly you know, rank this as be needing moderation or not meeting moderation, I'm super fascinated by this. You know, Facebook has tried it themselves with their oversight board, trying to kind of outsource this, trying to get it a little bit further away from themselves. In fact, because they don't want to have that responsibility, but so fascinated. Like, do you think there needs to be humans in the loop for this kind of system or can you just leave it entirely to the apps to decide what they want to do? Because ideally, if you guys are starting to generate real revenue from this or at least from Aave, that you'd be able to fund some of that moderation. But maybe that centralized moderation is just totally at odds with, with the ethos of this whole project. I think also like centralized moderation is, is very difficult in the sense that it doesn't feel right when there is an authority that actually blocks your content or moderates you or there's some sort of a algorithmic shadow banning. For example, in my, like I recently, a month ago or so, I tweeted that as Elon Musk was buying Twitter, um, that essentially I'm the new interim CEO of Twitter as a joke. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and I got banned for one day, essentially. And, and there was this hashtag free movement as well at the same time. So for me, it's very... Kind of like the, the feeling was like you are abandoned from a system and I lost my connection to my audience. That was my only public facing audience at Twitter where I had this wide reach to my audience. And for me, the, the feeling is kind of like a very hard to grasp compared to where it's a more of a community decision. So for example, in the Web3 communities, what constantly happens is that they tweak different kinds of risk parameters in financial algorithms. They decide how treasury is given, how grants are given, and a lot of decision-making happens on a community level. And it's very easily and more acceptable for a couple of reasons. First, because you can relate to the people, because you can be part of that community. But also many of that discussion happens actually publicly or, or in a group where there's other peers and, and you can actually relate and you don't have this like a platform versus you setting. And I think that's why probably like community aspect might work better than than centralized content moderation. And also like when you have centralization, the opinions are very coherent and they, they tend to be the same way because you have guidelines. But in a community, you might have so many different opinions and essentially there's less risk that someone will not understand what you actually wanted to present. So I definitely think the the community is a very strong way to build moderation. I'm glad that you also don't necessarily know the exact answer because these problems have been plaguing social networks for decades now. I don't think there's going to be an easy and obvious answer. But what I do like is just giving people that flexibility of choosing what kind of feed and what kind of people behind it, what kind of rules they want to sign into and say that, you know, instead of it just being, oh, I'm stuck with this network, I can't move my graphs or whatever new decision making, whatever new leadership comes in, I'm, I'm sort of stuck with them. You're kind of instead stuck with the community that you throw your hat in, but you, with, but you can always change that. It's also like a part of the way that we think in in Web3 and, and build things. So, for example, Lens Protocol doesn't solve even like the 90%, maybe like less than like 5% of the whole um, social media kind of like a landscape uh, that you can actually solve and, and innovate on. And that's the idea of Web3 is that you build something very valuable, kind of like a fundamental, and try to inspire other builders and creators to come and figure out all those rest of the pieces of the puzzle. And then the ecosystem is more decentralized because you're not building everything yourself. I like that. It's more about posing questions than it is about demanding that you have the right answer. But Stanny, you are already the CEO of this massive company, Ave, that's you know building this incredible social lending protocol. That seems like enough of a day job, especially with like the, the recent crisis around lending, uh, which just brings me to the question of like, what was it about you? Was it in your childhood, some like longing for a better way of like making friendships and connections or something in your college days? Like, what is it? What was your superhero origin story that made you want to build this thing that made you want to pose this question of what if we built a different, more decentralized social network where you have control? Like, what, what is it that you think in your, your past life that really inspired you to want to build this? I think for us, it's it's mainly has been the concept of ownership and and seeing like what you can actually, like how big of an impact you can give when you actually bring the ownership to the users, 
And seeing that happen in decentralized finance made us quite quickly to understand that actually something like user ownership can be applied elsewhere too. And the NFT economy and, and the boom that happened there, artists being able to go directly to their communities and the community members can support directly their artists and thinking of the Web3 social and thinking the potential, what you can actually do if you change the dynamics where the users are the owners of their content and their networks and seeing essentially how much innovation can bring. That's a very cool idea. That, that's super cool. But like, I want to zoom back even further. Like, when you were a kid, did you have like lots of different sort of disparate friend groups that didn't super overlap? So they were, you almost kind of had a decentralized social graph where there were these different pockets. I always find that there's some weird little, like almost like philosophical bent or past life experience that drives people to build what they want to build, even if they don't really put like put the numbers together or connect the dots. But like, did you said like, did you actually have that kind of like decentralized social graph maybe because in different countries or different topics if you look all the way back when i started like my, my first kind of like a more of like a social media experience was with the internet relay chat and that was like very fascinating because you could just run a server uh, and essentially invite friends and talk about different things and that's already basically social and obviously because it wasn't graphical and, and so forth Someone actually created a more of like a website where if you, ha if, if you were hanging at uh, Internet Relay Chat, essentially a lot of gamers at my age, you could actually post pictures like who you actually are so people can recognize you. So I think that was like one, one interesting thing where I started quite a lot getting excited about like what if you can actually connect a lot of people together and you can do a lot of exciting things. But related to, to also if you think about like social graphs, that's just one world that I had. Then I have another world where I have my peers that is basically social, but on the internet. And then I have other networks and as social media started to become popular with the MySpace, there was like a different audiences for me. And I think there's a lot of value on actually having like a kind of like a, like a bigger social graph. But I also see some, somehow that maybe the future is that where you just don't have that one identity where everything is linked, but maybe you just have multiple profiles, which actually are all part of your identity, but you interact in different ways. And that's something that might happen in the future. I love that concept of prismatic identity, where we're not the same in every, in every situation. We code switch, we talk differently, we act differently, depending on what group we're in, and trying to kind of base those all back down to like a lowest common denominator, one overlapping person that can go in every direction. I feel like that's really, that's really a web two ethos. And that was kind of Mark Zuckerberg's idea with Facebook was like real name policy. You are yourself. You're this one person, no matter like what else you do. But I think that that's also often very much rooted in privilege where like, yeah, if you have a lot of job security, you can say whatever you want online or like have a more outgoing like social life and post all these pictures about it because you're like, oh, I'm needed, I'm valuable versus like if you're an intern at like a law firm and you do, you know, you post some like picture of you getting drunk, like you could actually get fired for that and you don't have that much control or leverage. And so that prismatic identity could actually be really dangerous to you. And so I'm fascinated that like in this more Web3 world, like people are okay with saying, you know, I don't necessarily like, yeah, I, our interests don't have to perfectly overlap for us to be friends or teammates, or we, we don't have to always see eye to eye. We can choose different even ways of experiencing these social networks. And that's okay. Like, is that what you kind of imagine? And where do you see this decentralized social networking game going in, in five years? Like where, what is this space going to look like in five years? I definitely see that you kind of like can have multiple identities. And I, I definitely know a lot of peers who actually have a, a, another account, let's say on Twitter, where they do say some sort of shit posting or, or, or some sort of like a uh, interesting like alt posting that they might have. And, and I, I think that's quite normal behavior in my opinion. I see also this kind of like a idea of multiple identities also deriving the fact that we play a lot of games, we have avatars, you know, we, a lot of interaction happens uh, online, not physically. So we actually have more imagination that what kind of characters we could have. And all imagination, creativity is good for us. I think that's the way to go. And in terms of like where social media will be in, in five years, I think everything becomes social and there's different kinds of graphs. And I think like the, the base layer is the ownership. That's, that's basically kind of like 
having your profile, uh, the access to your audience as, as a more of a right for you. That's the base layer. But the very biggest, like fa- fascinating part is then when you have all this on-chain data and how to make it very valuable for you. Because what will happen in the future with Web3 Social is that it's not the platforms extracting data from you and 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 essentially selling different kinds of services, but actually now it's a different kind of cycle where all that data is is essentially used to finding what is most interesting for you and helpful for you and where do you find the next experience because you can just vote with your feet uh, relatively quickly and you always carry your audience. So you have your value all the time. And I think in the future, uh, people will know uh, their own value. Absolutely. I think we're seeing that it's like this this shift from publications to individuals, from you know, from publishers to personalities. And you've seen this play out in in media and journalism in particular. It used to be that like the newspaper or the editor held all the power and the writers were just kind of these inter you know changeable people within those organizations, because the organization held all the distribution power. But more recently, as writers and journalists have been building massive Twitter followings, huge email subscriber lists, they're actually able to bring their audience with them from one publication to the other, which gives them a lot more flexibility to jump around. And you can see people like Taylor Lorenz didn't have to stay at the New York Times. She could go to the Washington Post and still bring a lot of her following with her. And I think that that's really what the future is going to look like in a lot of this networking is that if you want to do something different with an app, if you want to try something new, if you want to be a new version of your own prismatic identity, you can do that while still not forsaking and sacrificing your existing following. I want to give a little bit of a recap of some of the top points from our incredible conversation with Stanny today. So you know, we started talking about what was wrong with existing social networks, with this concept of the lack of portability and control. You didn't determine the moderation rules. You didn't get to decide what kind of algorithm you were using. And most importantly, you didn't have portability of your social graph. You couldn't bring it to a new network, which meant that these social networks weren't very incentivized to actually treat you right, to value your privacy, to help you monetize your content. And you know, Stanny grew up on things like IRC uh, a more decentralized version of an instant messaging and had different friend groups around different online communities. And then when he saw Ave, his social lending protocol get so big, you know, billions and billions of dollars in locked value at this point, he really saw that maybe this concept of decentralization could really impact social networking as well. If you could lend money peer to peer, couldn't you have uh, decentralized social networking where you didn't need to have central actor, you could just have profiles connecting directly to each other. And so the thing is that building these kind of networks is slow, but what's interesting is that you're not kind of answering every question. You don't have to build every piece of functionality, but with something like Lens Protocol, you surface the question. You say, what could be different? What do you want to build? And while it might take longer to build out and you don't have to get that immediate rush of like network effect, over time you'll see developers with that flexibility be able to build out really new interesting things. You know, he loves networks like Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, which have different social, you know, social algorithms based on who's already following you or who reshares your content or just how many people actually experience and enjoy that content. But now we're going to have a marketplace of algorithms where people get to choose between what do they care about? Do they want to see more new posts? Do they want to see more things that are familiar? Do they want to dive into a specific category? And, and I think over time, we'll see new whole atomic units of these algorithms that, that depend on you know what it is that you care about in the world, and you'll get to see content based on that. And you're already seeing that with things like Tea Party, where you, know, you can take your post or like a lens post or a Twitter post, submit it to the application and you get this soul bound NFT that you said you're kind of the first person to really care about this. And you're also seeing interesting use cases like the proof of protest that Pussy Riot dropped today, this art on the product on the lens protocol fighting for abortion rights. And I think the idea that you don't have to worry about that censorship because you know, you pick the kind of network that you want to post to through lens. I think that really matters in an era of activism and when we don't necessarily trust all of our institutions. And in this case, you're not the product. You're not the product being sold to the advertisers. You truly are the user because that data doesn't accrue to the platform. It accrues to you. You're the one that gets to decide how it's used. And I think the more the idea that being able to pull in more implicit signals like your activity on the blockchain, uh, the ability to say, you know, to really
really get bragging rights over liking something first, having the flexibility to choose your own moderation protocols and saying, hey, I want to do a network that's be a part of a network that's more lax on moderation. I want to be one that's more strict. I want one that has more social justice values. I think that that's a really incredible flexibility and important when we see so much polarization in the world right now. And you know, at the application level, the idea that these different apps get to choose which moderation level they want to subscribe to, that gives a really great opportunity for people to show their prismatic identity, that they don't have to have a single identity from this era of like rooted in privilege where it was like, oh, you have to be your same person everywhere, which is really great if you have lots of power and lots of leverage in the world and not as much if you're kind of disadvantaged and you don't always get to decide what happens next with your career or your finances. And so I think this idea of prismatic identity in an era of anons and finstas and shitposting means that people really get to be themselves and you'll get rid of this chilling effect. And instead, people really get to decide how they want to connect, who they want to connect with, and in fact, who they want to be. So thank you so much, Danny. I really appreciate you joining us to talk about this all today. And I think maybe I'll just leave it with you with this, Danny. I would love to hear one final point on, you know, why do you think having that healthy social life online is so important? For so long, we were told, oh, you got to go outside, you got to touch grass, you got to have IRL friends. But I think that there's so much beauty to the idea that you know people, regardless of geography, regardless of having perfectly overlapping interests, the fact that they can just align on one big topic and be able to make something and collaborate is so exciting. But why do you think this is important? If you give could give one sort of you know call to action to people out there about activating their social life, their prismatic identity online, what would you say to them? I think it's 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 the time to take the ownership back of what basically belongs to you and that's your presence in social media. And that also means not only being able to own a profile and post things that your followers can access and have that accessibility, but also the decision making. So with Lens protocol, for example, and Web3 protocols in general, the idea is that from the community aspect, you participate and actually give guidance to the developers on what should be the future of social media because it has to be more humane, friendlier, more safer. But at the same time, it requires guidance from the community. And the community is essentially you who are going to use it in the future. So it's about also being able to participate and make changes as a community member. And I think that's, that's the important part of the Web3 and Web3 social media. I love that idea that you don't only get to participate in these communities, you get to govern them. You get to decide the direction of them and you finally have some control in this world of social networking that's been dominated by tech giants for far too long. So thank you all for being here on Press Club where we bring the big names in tech together to talk about the big ideas. I'm your host, Josh Constein from SignalFire. If you guys are building something interesting at the future of Web3, social or infrastructure uh, for the future, we'd love to hear about it. We're a billion dollar under management venture fund. We fund companies seed to series B and we really help with things like our recruiting engine Beacon that ranks 495 million people in the tech ecosystem on skill level and hireability so we can give you lists of the best people to hire. We also have in-house experts it's like I run a PR advisory program. The ex-Stripe CMO runs our go-to-market program. The chief talent officer from Netflix who wrote the Netflix Culture Handbook leads our talent program. So if you want help with those kind of things, an investor that doesn't just give money, that actually gives help, hit us up at SignalFire. We'd love to hear about what you're building. Stanny, thank you so much for being part of this show. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for having me here, Josh. It was amazing. Love it. Thank you to the whole Lens Protocol team, the Ave team, as well as all of the developers building on top of Lens Protocol right now. You guys are the best. You guys are what are, are answering that big question that Stanley has posed. So thanks again for all being here on Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Catch us next week on Press Club. Farewell. well.